You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Northway Church, good morning. My name is Brady Goodwin. I serve as one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to open up Scripture with you today and to hear God speak. Um, We are continuing uh, our series uh, called Onward that is all about what it means to be a a meaningful member of God's church. Uh, We have covered the following things so far. First, we believe uh, that we are united around the hope and truth uh, of Jesus Christ and belief in his name. Second, um, we gather that as you are here this morning, that one of the marks of uh, a a healthy church comprised of faithful members is folks who gather, who come and celebrate and remember what God has done through Jesus Christ. Uh, We belong, that we uh, also are called to, to form and forge relationships and community that is centered around uh, the hope we have in Christ. Last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about uh, how we serve, that we are called to minister for the sake of others. And today we are um, considering what it means to train, that at Northway we train. Uh, I want to invite you to open up in the scriptures uh, to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. We're going to read this text and then jump into our time together this morning looking at um, what it means to train, what it means to equip. Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 7, says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we look at this passage, that you would strengthen us with a vision for what your church can be, and what it will take to get there. Help us to be refreshed by what we 
hear from you today that we would be strengthened by your spirit for your service and for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so everyone has a vision for their life, right? You have a vision for what you want your life to look like. You have goals to which you aspire that you will pursue with concrete steps to help get you there. Maybe you want to learn how to cook, and so you start with a cooking class. You start with knife skills, very important. You have to have the right knives. You have to know how to work them. Uh, maybe you want to learn, you want to, you want to run a marathon, and so you start out with a slow plan to build up mileage, to guard against injury, to eventually get you to the place that you want to go. Maybe you have a career that you want to pursue, and you recognize the requisite training that's going to get there. Whatever the goal, there is a vision that drives our efforts. We see what could be, and we labor so that it will be. In the same way, God has a vision for his church. This vision is the visible outworking of God's mission of proclaiming the hope of Jesus Christ and his good news in the gospel, making disciples who love him and follow him with their lives, and seeing his glory made manifest to the world in and through the church, his people. One of my seminary professors described a vision like this, that it is a clear and compelling picture of the future as you believe it can and must be. A vision is not only what's possible, but what's critical. What does this look like here at Northway? We gathered on Friday night for vision night. A lot of what we did yesterday at our leader summit was oriented around vision. And it feels really timely that a message on training would start out by thinking about vision. What does it look like to see this kind of, uh, to see the vision that God has for us here at Northway? And here's some of the things that I think it looks like. It looks like a church where every member truly sees themselves as a minister of Christ's grace in every sphere of their life. It's a fellowship that's marked by unity in Christ that celebrates our distinct histories and their common thread in the gospel. It's a family where lives are transformed and freedom from sin and its effects are truly known. It's a body that tangibly walks in the fruit of the Spirit, whose maturity enables us to withstand threats from within and pressures from without. And it's a people who embodies truth and love because of Christ, which compels others to follow him because of the glory displayed therein. Such a vision shows us what is possible, what could be in the life of this and every church whose heartbeat is the gospel. But this vision is also critical. It demonstrates the kind of characteristics that must exist if we are to succeed in pursuing our mission to make disciples. This vision also highlights the risks that are gonna keep us from where God wants us to go. But the truth is, is that today at Northway, while this vision is aspirational, it is not yet actual. We know what our goal is. We see what is possible, but we do not fully possess what it will take to get there. We need help in pursuing what God is calling us to pursue so that by his power and strength, his vision can move nearer to reality. Training 
is God's way of supplying what is lacking in us and helping us to overcome the threats that come against us. We train so that we may serve according to God's plan. You're not going to achieve a goal like this without training that's going to help you get there. We cannot pursue our mission of making disciples without training to guide our work. We train to pursue our mission so that God's vision will become reality. We train to pursue our mission so that God's vision will become reality. This passage that we read out of Ephesians 4 gives us a plan. It gives us a plan for training God's way. In it, we see four compass points, four principles that are gonna provide the necessary direction for our training as we pursue God's vision for his people. First of these compass points is this, that our power for training is the grace of Jesus. Look with me again at verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so I enjoy doing yard work. Anybody here with me? Enjoy it? Okay, I see, you're, I see you nodding your head, Harry. I may not enjoy starting yard work, but I always appreciate doing it once I've begun. But you may have noticed, today's actually something of a, uh, a unique example, but we live in Texas and Texas summers are hot. If I don't get out early, if I'm not properly hydrated, if I'm working on an empty stomach, things are gonna go bad in a hurry. And recently I found, out, uh, found this out firsthand. I was in my backyard, kind of behind our fence, cutting down some bamboo. If you have bamboo in your yard, in your yard you know you have to cut it down or it's going to cut you down. I was back there cutting away, and to expedite the process, I decided to grab my trusty chainsaw. Things were going great until they weren't. As the afternoon wore on, my fatigue set in. I bent down with my left hand to throw some bamboo behind me, but I did not know where my right hand was that was holding the chainsaw until it came down and bumped on my leg. No big deal. Three stitches and a Tdap vaccine later, I was just fine. <laughs> but what happened here? I was tired, I was hungry, I was thirsty. I didn't have the strength to do what, I, what was needed. I didn't have the power to accomplish what I set out to do. A lot of times we think about our lives as Christians in the same way. We want to get to work, we want, we see, you hear this vision I'm describing, you say, yeah, I wanna do that but we don't have the power to do it well. And this is because we are missing the crucial element, which is what Paul describes in verse seven. Grace that has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The power for our training is the grace of Jesus. This is the starting point. Paul's not describing here a grace that saves, but rather the grace that comes from Jesus to supply the power that we need to serve him as he calls us to do. It is his empowering grace. This is grace that is given to each of us, which is something we will see as uh, the importance of this is something we're gonna see in the next few minutes. But what I want you to realize is that it is a greater gift than you know. It's not just grace in the sense of everyone has a unique gift, which you do, but it is power that represents the foundational glory of the gospel. It's huge. Paul quotes six, Psalm 68, 18. Um, 
but he changes the meaning to help illustrate this. You can only do that if you are Paul, by the way. You and I don't get that privilege. In the original passage, Psalm 68, the psalmist says this of God, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. But here it says that it is the Lord who gave gifts to men. What does this mean? In essence, Paul is emphasizing the gift-giving character of Jesus to empower his people for service. He's given grace to all believers because he is the grace giver. He has the authority to do so because he is the one who both descended, coming to earth, putting sin to death, conquering Satan, bringing freedom to captives, but he is the one who ascended, as Paul will describe in verse 10. He who had descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. But notice his purpose, to fill all things. What does this mean? It means seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel made known in all creation, in your neighborhood, in this city, in our nation, across the world. How does this happen? One scholar, um, a former professor at my old seminary, DTS, Harold Honer, he said it in this way, how is the universe filled with all things? It's the benefits of the work of Christ and consequently the ministry of the church to which Christ gave gifted persons who can function in his power. In other words, Christ's purpose is accomplished through his cross and through his people. This is why verses 7 through 10 are so significant. Originally, I was going to just preach on verses 11 through 16, but I realized you can't understand the significance of 11 through 16 without seeing how massive this gift is and the calling that the church is to pursue and the kind of power that's necessary to pursue it unless we look at verses seven through 10. This grace that is given to us is meant to do nothing less than revealing God's glory through the church everywhere. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul will say this about how this glory is to be revealed. In Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 10, he says this, "'To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God whom created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places.'" What does this mean? It means that the church exists to make God's glory known. It is God's intended context for such a manifestation through local congregations that preach Christ, through people who live for him, and those who invite others to a life of faith and adoration in light of all that he has accomplished. There is no way that that is possible for us without the right training, and there is no way that is possible for us without the grace of Jesus to empower our efforts. His his grace is the power for our training. This leads us to compass point number two, that our guides for such training are the leaders that God has given the church. For three years, Jesus shared his life with his disciples, teaching and training them to be his witnesses. His disciples spent their apprenticeship watching their teacher, learning from him, and eventually practicing the same methods that he imparted to them. He guided their training towards a specific end, 
all with the promise that when he went to the Father, he would send his spirit to continue the work he'd begun. When he ascended to heaven, he commissioned these same men to go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And he gave them this promise at the end of Matthew's gospel, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He walked with them, he trained them, and then he sent them. In the same way, Jesus doesn't give us this power without guides to help us steward his grace for his purposes. In verse 11, we see that Jesus has given the church specially called leaders in order to train, to equip the church for what they are called to do. Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Paul is describing two primary groups of people that Jesus has given the church as leaders. First, we see the apostles and prophets. Apostles were responsible for furthering the gospel by planting new churches. They were the missionaries of the early church. Prophets, as one commentator describes, were specialists at mediating divine revelation. They delivered the mystery of the gospel as they declared God's words and messages for the building up of the church. Apostles and prophets served a foundational role in establishing the universal church. And in this sense, um, they're they're a past tense group of leaders. They started the church, they spread the gospel, prophets gave revelation. We have that revelation now in the scriptures. But second are leaders that still exist today, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And this is a group that that we could generally identify today as um, elders, pastors, overseers in the church. They proclaim the gospel by teaching God's word, exercising oversight, leading the church. At Northway, our pastors and elders lead the way in providing teaching, shepherding, and seeking to share the hope of Christ with others. Alongside that group of men, our staff, ministers, and deacons support this work as these men and women serve the needs of our body. And of course, we are not alone in these efforts because there are many of you who are gifted as well in evangelism, care, and teaching. But I want you to notice that the leaders that Jesus has given the church, regardless of their gifting, have a very specific job description to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The church's leaders are called to train Christians for the work of ministry. This is the same word that Jonathan talked about last week with service. It's the same idea. It describes the different works that Christians are called to pursue in their lives with one another. It's not just some people in the church, but all the saints. It's all of us. The first person that I served in ministry with modeled this approach so well for me. A pastor named Tim at the church that I served at previously where my wife was raised, he was a faithful pastor. He still is a faithful pastor, but he was a faithful pastor there. He coached me and he equipped me for four years as a young pastoral intern. He gave me the opportunity to learn, to make mistakes, to grow, to lead, He did this with many others through his years at that church, and he continues to do so as a pastor today. In some small way, I've sought to carry that forward, as do our other elders and leaders, through the often slow but incredibly rewarding work of equipping, disciple-making, and training every member that I can here at Northway. 
Many of you, if you have been a part of a church that takes gospel training seriously, you likely have experienced relationships like this, where leaders take the time to know and to develop and to coach and to release men and women for ministry. They're less focused on the number of people in their church, but the quality of equipping in their church. This is why we call you to join us in the work of equipping and making disciples. So many of you, you eagerly join us, but we're going to stress this more in a few minutes. We need all of you to be equipped if we are to fulfill our mission of making disciples and our vision of Christ being made known in our city. These leaders are called to equip and train all of us for ministry. But how does it actually accomplish the goal? How does equipping lead to the kind of goal we're describing with the vision that God has for his church? What does it look like? What fruit tells us we're moving in the right direction? And what are the dangers that we will face if we are ineffective in these efforts? This is the third compass point. Compass point number three, the purpose of our training is maturity among the people of God. Look at the very next next phrase of Ephesians 4.12. This phrase, and into verse 13, tells us what our training is to be about. These leaders have been given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our training is to be directed towards ministry that builds up the church and which is characterized by two things. Unity around what we believe, around who Jesus is and what he accomplished, and maturity that on the ground very practically looks like increasing Christ-likeness in all of life. In other words, the church being equipped by its leaders for such a purpose is meant to minister in such a way that it grows together in knowledge as well as practice. They must both mark the training and maturity of the church, knowledge and practice. They both have to be there. This is important for two reasons. One, knowledge can only take you so far. For example, I have what some might call an unusually high ability to retain facts and informations about many different subjects. Some may say useless subjects. I just say different subjects. (laughs) I've always been good at trivial pursuit. You young people are like, what's that? Jeopardy, same. and any other test that may require a bunch of useless knowledge. I sit at home with my wife, Amy, and I'll say something about some obscure thing, and she will say, how do you know that? And I will say, how do I know anything? And she will give me a big eye roll. (laughs) But here's what you need to know. That knowledge can't take me anywhere because it's insufficient on its own. It doesn't matter if I know every word to Hamilton. I'm not going to get on Broadway. But of course, knowledge about God and his word doesn't work this way. This is the amazing thing. To know God through his word is actually to be brought into an unending wellspring of truth. Jesus is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as Paul will describe in Colossians 2, verse 3. Knowing him is of inestimable importance, and such knowledge truly is precious to the heart of God. This is why we always pursue such avenues of training, like men's and women's Bible classes. It's why we always preach in such a way that helps us to know the word of God. But we can often treat the knowledge of God 
the way that I might treat the simple acquisition of facts. We just see it as a means to its own end. You may be surprised to hear me say something like this, especially if you know how much I have been affected by a deep love for God's word. But the truth is that knowledge alone is not enough to accomplish the kind of vision that God has for his church. He doesn't want you and I to be just learners. He wants us to be doers. He doesn't want us to simply know about Jesus. He wants us to know him and to become like him. And this leads to the second reason that this pairing of knowledge and maturity or knowledge and practice is so crucial is that our maturity, our increasing Christ-likeness is the necessary foundation for withstanding the threats that will ultimately keep us from fulfilling God's mission. What are those threats? Chiefly, we see this from this passage. They are immaturity and instability. The reason Paul emphasizes the importance of maturity in verse 13 is because of the threat that immaturity poses in verse 14. We are to pursue maturity as a church so that we may no longer be children. Okay, it's fine to be a kid. It's a really wonderful thing to be a kid. But children, as much as they insist to the contrary, don't know everything about everything. When we are children in Christ, We are not yet mature, but we think we know more than we do. We will become frustrated then when our knowledge fails to lead to true growth. So you may be asking, how do I know if I am a child in Christ? Because you act like one. You live like one. You constantly fight against the people in your life. You're unwilling to hear correction without complaint. You make the same decisions again and again and expect different results. And then you become angry when things are not going the way that you want them to. You reflexively and habitually blame other people for the things that go wrong in your life because you don't see what everybody else does, that you're immature. Immature people don't often think about advancing the cause of Christ because they're usually too busy thinking about themselves. Immaturity, though, also produces really significant instability. What happens when we are immature is that we become easily confused in our thinking and we become easily influenced by others. We fail to see threats that exist to the gospel's supremacy in our own lives. This is either because of our own struggles or also the influence of others. This is why Paul says that if we remain children, if we remain children, we're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He knows that immaturity leads to instability and that instability breeds a kind of incoherence. But there is, of course, a knowledge dimension to this statement. It's not that we separate the two things. Um, They overlap in such a significant way. If we are without a firm doctrinal foundation that's anchored to the word of God, we are going to be naive to the threats that come with novel teaching that subverts true belief in the gospel. But because we act in accordance with our beliefs as they truly are, we live out what we really believe It's never merely our knowledge that is corrupted, but it's always expressed through our desires, through our choices, and through our commitments. Incoherence is what happens when we know what is true and yet live in a way that contradicts it. How can we know if this has happened to us? All of our situations are different, so bear with me in some of the limitations that may exist. But I think there are some common questions that we can ask that help us to discern if this has happened to us. 
Do you view the scriptures as true? Do you see them as being from God? Do you see them then as having authority over your life? Or are there other sources of truth that could potentially supersede or overrule the word of God for you? Does your understanding of the problems in your life, in the lives of others, in our nation, or in our world, reflect the same explanations as scripture? Is that understanding reflective of the deep fracture of sin in the world and its corresponding effects? Or are there other explanations that could override God's perspective? Are the chief influences in your life people that emphasize your human capacity to achieve your goals? Do they tell you in some form you are enough? Or do they stress the needed help of God? Do they stress our own insufficiency and the need for his grace with each day? When you are faced with a problem in your life, do you turn to the word of God for wisdom? Do you seek out people whose lives are marked by such wisdom? Or are there alternative perspectives that are just as trustworthy in your eyes, just as good? Have you found what you believe to be the answer to your behavior, your personality, your struggles, and you can't wait for other people to know what you know? Is that answer the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Is it the active help of the Holy Spirit to bring change? Is it the promise of Christ's return and with it the restoration of all things? Or is it a human system of organizing and describing your experiences that simply makes sense of the way you understand your life? What's common to each of these questions is that they reflect the chasm that exists in a person's life when they say that they trust scripture, but express its fundamental functional irrelevance for their life through their actions. They are the ones who are therefore much more likely to pursue other sources of wisdom, other ways of living, which cannot help but distract them from the significance of Christ for their lives. They are acting out a current version of the threat that Paul described in his letter to the Colossian church. And he said in chapter two of that letter, verses six through eight, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, as Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Thus, we may find ourselves affirming the gospel with our words, but all the while denying it with our lives. We remain immature and unstable, looking for incoherent hopes that's going to never help us the way that we think they will. The net effect is a contradiction of terms. What sense does it make for us to proclaim Christ as the hope a person needs for their deepest struggles if he is not the same hope that we turn to when we face struggles in our own life? It doesn't make any sense. The only way that we can overcome this threat is that if we are trained 
to know the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world and its practical effect on our lives. If we are trained to apply scripture to our lives in a comprehensive way, if we are equipped to speak the truth in love, as we will read in verse 15, balancing our tenderness with our conviction as we speak and apply the gospel to the lives of others in need of the hope of Christ. This is something that we are all called to pursue, all of us. We therefore are all called to be equipped to such ends. That's the focus of our fourth compass point. Compass point number four, the recipients of God's training are every member of the body. If verse 14 highlights the key risks of the absence of training and ministry in the body, verses 15 through 16 provide the remedy. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Instead of immaturity and instability, there is truth and love. And in no way am I trying to sidestep the significance of this phrase in verse 15. This is actually the very heart of our biblical counseling classes and our trainings on evangelism and missions. But today I wanna think about more who it is that is called to speak in such a way. I can't express to you the depths to which I am continually encouraged by men and women in our church who rise to the call of being trained and serving for the sake of Christ. An example is that a couple of years ago, we looked at the training that our gospel care mentors received and we said, there needs to be more here. And so we developed curriculum to help provide for that. And we said, if you wanna serve in this way, you have to go through at least this semester length worth of training. And a few folks asked me, do you think that's gonna prevent a barrier? And I kind of said, I don't know, I hope not. But to my surprise and delight, it hardly had any negative effect at all. And in fact, I think it brought more people in and we have since had dozens of men and women trained in how to minister God's word to the struggles and suffering of a person's life. But at the same time, I've honestly been confused by some of the conversations I have had with members in our body who want to see themselves and want to see men and women grow in their maturity in Christ, but resist calls to be trained and to step into ministry to others. Of course, there are legitimate reasons why a person might say no, but I'm talking about those whose reluctance is purely an expression of inaction and unwillingness. Why does such inaction proliferate in our midst? Why does it continue to happen? Because it does happen. Jonathan talked about this last week, the old kind of historic statistic of 80% of the ministry being accomplished by 20% of people in the church. Why is this the way that it is? I think there's probably three factors. The first is prioritization. Do we see the ministry of God's people as a priority to pursue? Or is it an option that we can relegate unless time permits. Only in our youngest years, by the way, do we simply have time to devote whatever we wish to do. Only when I was like 20. Unless we set aside time and we devote ourselves to that which we see as important, we will always have something else that creeps at the margins and demands our attention. The second factor is fear. We love to receive training that informs our minds, but we struggle when we are asked to put knowledge to practice. 
sharing Christ with other people, speaking a hard but necessary truth to a person in need. These are difficult things. They are difficult unless we are trained and gain experience that helps us to overcome our discomfort. Sometimes we chalk this up to insecurity, but what is insecurity except the fear of some potential loss that we guard against to a greater degree than we follow our Lord in obedience? The third factor, and maybe the most prevalent, is just simply apathy. There are other things that are more important to us that we feel we must do, and we believe other people will answer the charge in our absence. But what does this text say? When each part is working properly. When each part is working properly. If you neglect your role to serve and to be trained for such service, perhaps someone else will seek to be trained but they won't have your specific gifting. They won't have your unique temperament. They won't share your passions and your interests. They won't be you. Northway needs you. No one else. We need the other people too, but we need you. You can have power for ministry that comes from Christ's grace. You can be trained by leaders who are called to equip the saints for ministry. You can grow in maturation and your knowledge of God and godliness in your life. And it still will not be what it could be unless your training overflows to ministry to others for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Is this not the heart of Jesus's words in Matthew chapter nine? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In light of our Savior's words, how can we grow in our pursuit of training towards God's vision for his church? How can we get there? How can we take the first steps towards seeing that vision become more of a reality? I want to end by offering you five encouragements for how this can happen. It's really funny. My son's in first grade. His teacher says, introduced this thing called encouragement octopus. You want to see what it is? It's encourage octopus. Good job, good job, good job, good job. It's hilarious. Five encouragements. And you can get that from me, okay? Number one, be trained wherever we are training. If there is a class, join it. If you've taken it already, join something else. This afternoon, after our 4 p.m. service, there is an opportunity for you to be trained with ISI. Tell me again what it's called, Kim. Friendship Partners, thank you. If you wanna learn how to develop a friendship anchored in the gospel with an international student, come after the four o'clock service to our guest, to our deck, and you can be trained for that. If you hear an opportunity to be trained, do it. Join in that effort. That's the first encouragement. Second, fight against topical isolation. Don't just get trained in one area, but rather explore everything that Northway is trying to do to equip the saints for ministry. What you're going to find if you do that is a remarkable cohesion and coherence that links these things together. 
If you jump in, for example, with our biblical counseling courses, which we will offer, hopefully, Lord willing, in 2022, you're going to see that there's a very high value on sharing Christ with those who don't know him, which sounds a lot like evangelism because it is. And you're going to learn when people are training others in evangelism that the first step you have to do is get to know them and their struggles and their needs, which is a lot what we do in the counseling class. You're going to see this linked effort that says our training is about one goal, which is to see disciples made and matured and Christ glorified. Third, answer the call to serve. Serve with students, be a gospel care mentor, lead a Bible class group, lead a gospel community. Your service then is going to expose where you need training and then go get trained in those areas. Don't shy away because of fear or a lack of current competence, but be trained to address those things. Fourth, avoid apathy. Everybody gets tired. I'm gonna be tired in about two minutes from this. We all get tired. Take appropriate seasons to rest, but then join us again. We are not being trained so that our knowledge merely increases. We are being trained so that we would become like Christ and invite others to follow him. Fifth, rejoice in what Jesus is doing. Rejoice in Christ. Jesus is at work through his church to fill all things. You and I have the unspeakable privilege of joining him in this work. What an honor that not only that we would be brought into his family, but that we'd be sent out as his servants. Can you imagine with me a church that looks like this? I am so overwhelmed by what God is doing in Northway, but there's more. There's more that he calls us to do. So let's pray that God will grant Northway great grace in the days to come as we pursue this vision in our city and its visible outcome of his mission to make disciples. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your help to these ends. Lord, help us to be men and women who are passionate about seeing your gospel go forth in this city. Help us to avail ourselves to the training that's going to help us get there. Let us have energy. Let us have courage. Let us have joy in the work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.